Hello, thank you for joining us for this podcast interview with Benjamin Smith on his recent book, The Dope. And we're also going to talk about his experience of doing Latin American history in the United Kingdom. So thank you very much, Benjamin, for joining us. Could you introduce yourself for our audience? Yeah, certainly. Uh, my name's uh, Benjamin Smith. I'm a professor of Latin American history uh, at the University of Warwick. Uh, I'm, I suppose, a specialist on uh, 19th and 20th century uh, Mexico, uh, but I've made the potentially rash decision to do now studies uh, rather more broadly, uh, the history of the drug trade and the history uh, of the war on drugs. Great. So let's talk about the book. So could you uh, talk us through the different stages of the book? Uh, share with us the main arguments and the sources that you use to, to make these interventions. Yeah, certainly. So um, uh, the book itself is, uh, I should say, at the, uh, the start is a, is a work of popular history. So it's attempted to kind of be pushed at a, an audience beyond academia and even beyond uh, undergraduate students. Uh, but it is based on about, uh, uh, about seven or eight years of fairly intense research uh, in Mexico and the United States. Uh, both in, I suppose, relatively orthodox archives like the National Archives uh, in the United States or the um, uh, the AGN, the General Archive of Mexico, uh, where I looked at kind of spy archives, but also the archives of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics in the United States. I went through a fair amount of, I suppose we did have some, some really lucky breaks in some of the sources that we found. So well, one thing we found is that it's actually quite easy to get hold of judicial files in Mexico. Um, which frankly no one uses for the 20th century, which really surprised me. So there are these things called casas jurídicas, which collect together judicial files. Uh, one is based in every capital city, every state capital of Mexico. There's a massive one in, Tolu um, in Toluca, which contains basically all the judicial files for any any criminal federal case post. Uh, 1950. So these are incredibly rich sources that we managed to get hold of. We then did also do some interviews, I suppose, with three specific groups of people. It's quite difficult to kind of doorstop major drug traffickers, but we uh, did do quite a lot of interviews with, I suppose, what you might call low-level mules and um, drug growers. Uh, a lot of these I, I managed to do because I, I do a lot of kind of pro bono work, working for refugees. And many people at the time, very sadly, were running away from particularly rural parts of Mexico, um, chased by drug gangs for refusing to grow drugs or for losing loads while going over the border. So I managed to get some interviews from them. Um, second group that I managed to get some interviews from uh, were basically American drug traffickers. So particularly, I felt there was a big hole in the... Um, in the literature when it came to the 60s and 70s, right? That's where that that's really when the the the, the Mexican drug trade takes off. It's kind of the, the counterculture is like rocket fuel for the uh, for the drug industry. Um, but no one ever written about these Amer uh, these American drug traffickers, except ironically, the American drug traffickers themselves, who uh, um, are now very wealthy, live on the west coast of the United States, or most of their profits have done their three or four years inside. Uh, and are now living on the uh, uh, the profits. Uh, their kids have normally gone into growing marijuana legally, and they were very happy to talk to us. Uh, so that was a really, um, I suppose, exciting group of people. Uh, and then uh, the third group is we did talk to a lot of DEA agents. Uh, so again, they were surprisingly happy to talk to us uh, and were fairly open about their um, involvement in the drug war, uh, some of their kind of bigger cases. Uh, again, they, they seem quite um, uh, open to, 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 to being interviewed. So I suppose we use mostly relatively orthodox uh, sources combined with these new judicial sources and these interviews. In terms of the story it tells, uh, I won't go too far into the weeds on this. And, and I've done plenty of these podcasts that and this is not necessarily focusing on that. But essentially, it tells this big hundred year history, which says that as soon as America um, made drugs illegal mexico started either producing them or trafficking them um uh, so effect and a, the fundamental argument is this economics drives this so effectively you have a very poor state next to a very rich state uh, and this very rich state mm -hmm. is the world's biggest consumer of narcotics certainly from the 1940s onwards um so after the after basically the chinese government reduced um opium smoking in china um, so this creates enormous incentives for Mexicans to grow and transport drugs up to the United States. You can basically earn a cab driver's fare 
uh, annual salary by growing a single marijuana plant and taking it over to the US. And so the incentives are there. Why not do it? Uh, the second thing, I suppose that, I mean, in a way, that's relatively obvious, but it drives the entire narrative of the book. When America needs drugs, Mexico steps into the uh, into the breach. The second thing I found out, which I think more people were perhaps perhaps slightly more surprised by, is that um, the state was heavily involved in protecting drug traffickers, or at least select groups of drug drug traffickers. Um, now, a lot of people just call this corruption. They just assume that governors are corrupt. They take money from drug traffickers, they pocket it, and they go and buy flash cars or a kind of second house for their lover. Um, one thing that I found, which I thought was quite interesting, was that these were fairly um, formal protection rackets. So though they were run by the governor and they were they were manned by the state police, a lot of the money that was taken from the drug traffickers to not prosecute them uh, actually ended up in the coffers of the Treasury. Um, so these the drug money in Mexico built schools, built roads um, by the 60s and 70s. It was increasingly arming and putting uniforms on cops and soldiers. But it was basically played a state building role, uh, certainly up to the 1990s. Um, I suppose the third thing that I found out, which, again, was was uh, this thing was uh, I came to it quite late and it was quite counterintuitive. Um, but I started to kind of peer through a lot of the drug war rhetoric and come to the conclusion of the vast majority of violence in Mexico. Um, and there was a kind of small amount of violence, but occasional kind of outbreaks of violence in the 30s, again, in the late 40s, in the 60s, in, in big drug growing regions. But obviously, post kind of 2000, 2005, uh, there's a huge outbreak of violence. And I kind of came to the conclusion that effectively this violence was not created, as I think is popularly thought, by animosity between rival drug gangs. Uh, that was not the fundamental cause of the violence. The fundamental cause of the violence was because alliances of drug gangs and politicians were attempting to monopolize the protection of all illicit trades in a region, right? Uh, so what we often would in shorthand say, oh, Juarez, 2010, two cartels were fighting at one another. But it wasn't really that simple. It was effectively two alliances, again, of state forces and criminals fighting for control of an entire illicit market. Yes, a large part was drugs, but there was also sex workers. There was also human trafficking. Uh, there was also DVD piracy. Uh, there was also drug selling on the streets of Juarez. Um, so that that was my one insight. The other insight I had, which, again, was was relatively kind of counterintuitive and I hadn't expect to find, is that. Hard drug policing, uh, so effectively threatening large drug traffickers with really enormous times in jail. Was it Chapo's? I think on three hundred and twenty years or something, um, and or violence, torture, murder, um, actually really worked to generate violence. Um, so the states put increasingly punitive policies towards drug traffickers, all they managed to do was up violence. Why? Because individual drug traffickers scared of doing 360 years in jail would effectively snitch on the, what previously had been their close friends. Now, what this did is it generated divisions between drug traffickers and they turned on one another. The classic example would be Chapo Guzman is under threat from the US DEA. So he basically becomes an informant for the DEA. Uh, and he turns on uh, his old compadres, alleged cousins, the Beltran Levers, and there's a massive war between them. But this is a war that is backed by the DEA uh, and, and by the Mexican police as well. Um, so I suppose that was my other kind of big insight, that, that, that the hard drug policing was massively counterproductive um, and... Uh, and neither brought down the, the, the neither increased the street price of drugs, didn't bring down addiction, but did manage to cause a hell of a lot of bodies piling up in Mexico. Uh, anyway, I said I wouldn't go into it very much, but now I've uh, bored the ears off your listeners. Sorry. That's a great overview of the, of the book. So thanks very much for, for sharing that with us. Um, I had originally written this question to ask about like your contributions to, to the historiography, but 
I'm going to change that because given it's a, like a popular history uh, published by a commercial press, I want to change it to why, why uh, or what do you intend to communicate to the public about this history? And in what way did you want to uh, change the way they thought about Mexican history and the drug trade? Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's particularly over the. I went. Actually, this is a really good question because it, it goes back to kind of, I suppose, what it's been like being an academic in Mexico over the last twenty years. So I turned up in Mexico in the late nineties with an enormous sense of hope and excitement. Right for for I suppose three fundamental reasons. One, it was democratizing, which was kind of exciting. However much of a clown Vicente Fox turned out to be. Um, two, because it had these extremely powerful social movements which were linking up old school leftism with new school identity politics the most famous of which being the zapatistas um uh, and then the third thing was they had an extraordinarily exciting kind of cultural movement which was perhaps best shown um in terms of uh, the wonderful work of directors like cuaron and inarito but also was there in the art world the music world it was a kind of cool place to be in the late 1990s and a really hopeful place to be as well i remember standing the back of the square, looking slightly embarrassed, um, uh, during the Zappa tour, together with my, my now wife, and thinking, wow, this place is really changed, really extraordinary, having having a, you know, one of the female commandantes lecture us on, on, on the ways to do politics, and everyone going, you're right. Um, so I suppose, you know, my question is, what went wrong? Uh, because now, when anyone, particularly from the US, but even in the UK, looks at Mexico, they see a terrifying. They see pictures of bodies hanging from bridges, images of Chapo, images of gold-plated, um, you know, uh, AK-47s. It's a place that has become entirely associated with violence. Now, I think that is overstated, and I think that is sensationalised. But there is no doubt that, as we all know, that the homicide rate has tripled um, from 2006 onwards. Uh, so undoubtedly what had been a very safe country, right? Mexico had a murder rate the same as the United States, or the same as the United States cities anyway, um, uh, in about 2006. So why has it become so dangerous? So I suppose I wanted to kind of ask, both explain to people that Mexico isn't intrinsically a violent place, um, but also kind of explain the roots of this industry that seems to have generated so much of this violence. And also, I think by the end, I was thinking... I also want to show people that there is nothing intrinsically violent about the drug trade. I think the assumption is that the drug trade itself is intrinsically violent. Uh, I remember reading a, uh, a work that said that it, uh, violence is in the DNA of the drug trade. But in my opinion, it's not really. It's in the DNA of prohibiting it because the drug trade itself is simply a commercial venture. It's growing something, uh, selling it, making it into you know, takeable drugs and then selling it over the border. None of those processes involve necessarily involve a gun uh, unless you come across a snitch or a policeman. Um, so it really it kind of struck me that the, 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 the tale I wanted to tell also was pushing back against a lot of the stereotypes that um, certainly Americans had of Mexicans, but also also British people had of Mexicans or Europeans had of Mexicans. And I thought these 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 stereotypes, and I was writing this you know, during the Trump presidency, were really unhelpful. They were the, the kind of stereotypes that meant that Trump could get away with saying he was going to build a wall, or they were the kind of stereotypes that meant that whenever you were in a refugee case in an immigration court in the US, the judge would immediately assume the, the poor rural farm worker that you were defending was some member of some horrendous cartel because you've been caught with a couple of marijuana cigarettes. Um, so I felt it was it was really uh, extremely destructive for the kind of political uh, political and social discourse in the United States and I say in the UK on a smaller scale in the UK, obviously. Okay, great. Um, so. I'll move on to the, uh, a later question, which is, <clears throat> what were the main challenges of, of writing this book? Uh, so effectively, effectively, there were kind of two really uh, big challenges. One is that 
drug traffickers are not terribly open about their operations. So it's quite, I mean, particularly, you know, we never got to talk to anyone who was really high up in the contemporary Mexican drug trade. I know a lot of really, really good journalists have. Some of the Mexican ones have been killed. The European and UK and American ones tend not to get killed. So people like Ewan Grillo has done amazing work with that. But that wasn't really kind of our aim. So it's pretty difficult to kind of penetrate what are fairly closed networks. Uh, so that was fairly difficult. Uh, and I've kind of maybe I can give you an example of how we managed to do this. or We thought we managed to do this. Um, so that was one big problem. The other big problem was if you go on the other side and you try and look at all the judicial cases and uh, the, uh, the DEA stuff and the, the press releases of the DEA that go into the newspapers, you basically got a really, really standard story. There are evil drug traffickers out there. They want to murder your children, uh, addict them to drugs. And we are the good guys and we're going to fight them. Uh, and everything we do is effectively justified. So there's a really pernicious drug rhetoric that has existed for 100 years. And it's kind of embedded. I found it was not only embedded in the sources, but it was embedded in the way that I initially at least read all the sources. My assumption was, well, they're probably broadly right. Probably the DEA, maybe they you know, have to crack some eggs to make some omelets, but they're essentially doing a, a broadly good thing, keeping drugs off the street, right? Uh, and the drug traffickers, by creating opium or whatever, or uh, heroin or trafficking cocaine, are doing something broadly bad, right? But then you realise you go into the kind of individual motivations and you realise that the drug traffickers themselves, the vast majority of people producing opium poppies, have no idea where this stuff is going. They have no idea of the kind of uh, incredibly awful effects that we know that heroin has on the streets of the UK uh, or the US. Um, part, partly because, in actual fact, the drug traffickers of Mexico kept drugs off the street, quite deliberately kept drugs off the street, said people didn't find out and the government didn't crack down on them. Um, so I suppose not only was the kind of the absence of sources when it came to drug traffickers, but also this kind of pervasive rhetoric, uh, this kind of pervasive moral binary uh, with which everything about the drug trade was written. Uh, which was really difficult to kind of penetrate, uh, uh, at, at least initially. Excellent. So, <clears throat> I mean, I'll, I'll make this a final question about your, your book. Um, so I was just wondering, why did you choose to, to go with a commercial press? Why did you choose to direct this towards the public? Uh, right, so why didn't I write it academically? This is something that has come up, actually. I was having a discussion with Paul Gutenberg, who expressed the wish that I had written an academic book. And I, I think also there was a review in the HHR by Isaac Campos saying, I wish he'd reckon, read, written an academic book. Um, right, two, th two things. And, and, and this is no slight to Paul or to Isaac, but perhaps this means that people don't quite understand the economics of the, um, uh, of the, academic industry in the UK and the US is I think probably I earn I guess I wouldn't even earn half what a US academic earns and probably not even a third so um so as a result publishing in the popular press actually gave me some there was a financial incentive um the the second thing is that once you get to full professor in Britain there is in some ways very little incentive to write academic texts because you don't get any kind of financial reward at all. Um, and existing in Britain, which has a limited interest in Latin America, uh, means that it's uh, being known as the person who wrote the best academic book on uh, Mexican drug trade is not an enormous advantage. So going back to your question, in very simple terms, rank self-interest. Uh, but at the same time, I will say I also wanted actual. I, I do think in academia, we spend a lot of our time um, basically doffing our cap to the historians that we might admire or we might think we have to show that we admire. And I'm not entirely sure that's that's very helpful. Um, I think that historiography, for example, is a very useful marker for where you stand. Uh, but it can also be used by men and is used by many historians 
simply as a way to show they're part of a particular school or they're allied with a particular group. And I find that kind of work not only unspeakably dull, but also really pointless and somewhat pernicious. Um, so so uh, I was trying to kind of get away from that, I suppose, in a way. Um, so I'm not against historic, and I think certainly for your kind of first book or your PhD, historiography is absolutely integral, uh, really, really important. Um, and anyone's written my read the six people who've read my first two books, um, they they will agree that I I do a lot of historiography, but I did really want to kind of escape from that. I find it I find particularly in America, and I'll be interested to see for your future questions. In America, it it felt like a cage. It felt like a cage. And you chose which case you wanted to be trapped in. And then you made quite a lot of money by being trapped in it. It is, as, as the Tigres del Norte would say, it is a, it is a, 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 a cage de oro. Great. Uh, yeah, so those are some fantastic candid answers. I appreciate that. Um, and I definitely agree with the... The point on historiography, so maybe the, the future anti-establishment, postmodernist version of history is to try and speak to the public. I, 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 I generally think there's a there's a huge I mean, this is again. So in, in the UK, we have an enormous uh, exercise called the REF, which anyone American might understand, but it's the Research Excellence Framework. And there's been a lot of stress over the last decade in making what they call public impact. Now, as usual in Britain, they try to quantify what is public impact, and it's impossible to quantify what is public impact. So, what is the what? How can you compare, for example, I have one colleague who went into a school in in Coventry and surprised everyone by saying, in actual fact, there were loads of um, uh, Caribbean and Indian students, and sorry, and Indian soldiers uh, in uh, in World War One. Well, that's great. You've changed the mind of thirty kids. They're going to walk out of there going. They know something else about the world. So how did, but how do you compare that to, for example, I don't know, I work on refugees. Uh, so I've stopped some refugees being thrown out into Mexico. Is that a social, imp is that impact? I've certainly impacted their lives. I don't know if I've actually changed their opinions at all. Um, so we find it very, very difficult to quantify, but over the last decade, uh, that plus the uh, the fact that our salaries have not increased since 2008 in real terms, and actually in real terms they've declined, have meant that a lot of historians or people working in the humanities or politics have been pushed towards producing more popular groups. As usual, it's a kind of broad cultural movement combined with just economic necessity. Just take that opportunity to plug in a little bit about the Scottish Centre for Global History, which is that you can quantify the success of this because it's online data, as we've had over 20,000 distinct visitors over the last year, and the average podcast receives over 100 listeners. That's so, that I have to say, that is extraordinary. I saw it was really being getting a lot of traction on Twitter, yeah. um, but then some awful things get really <laughs> get really big traction. Trump got a lot of track. Uh, but uh, so I'm really impressed, man. That's 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 really, really excellent. Um, I know I pointed my own students uh, towards it and I, I have no idea. They didn't do the reading. So I'm not sure that they actually listened to your podcast. But uh, anyway, um, no, they did. They were extremely good this year, actually. Um, so anyway, uh, Jess, let's go on with, with yeah. broader questions, if that's all right. So we'll move on to the doing Latin American history in the UK. Uh, so first, I wanted you to talk us through your experience of doing a PhD in the UK and kind of like the you know what that was like. Um, so my experience was um, you talked actually earlier about being a little bit confused about what a PhD was when you started and kind of searching around about why um, uh, you know where you should do it. So I, I came both from a position of enormous privilege but enormous ignorance. I uh, went to Cambridge uh, as an undergraduate and I uh, graduated from Cambridge. I became a, uh, a journalist. I was a hopeless, a genuinely hopeless journalist. I turned up there, I think actually in about the same month as Johan Grillo. Johan Grillo has come on, gone on to be probably the greatest English language journalist of, of Mexico, possibly ever, Alan Riding maybe or him. Um, whereas I got sacked after two weeks. Um, so as a result, I returned to Cambridge. Uh, well, I did. I lived in Mexico for about a year, taught English, uh, got to know a lot of it. Um, 
returned to Cambridge to do a PhD, I had assumed on 17th century alchemy, um, but instead within a week changed to Mexican history because by that point I was completely obsessed by it um, and found out that there was no one in Cambridge who could teach me. Uh, as a result, I immediately lost my British funding. Um, where, that was an era where there still was British funding, um, but I managed to lose it. Uh, but fortuitously, a very kind man called Chris Bailey, who was an Indian scholar uh, at Cambridge, he offered, there was at that time again, uh, some Cambridge money around, and I got, um, I got four years to do a master's and a PhD. And they also managed to find me a supervisor who was a retired um, Mexicanist, brilliant um, historian of religion and the colony uh, called David uh, Braden, who was I was extremely lucky to have as a PhD supervisor. I will say it was also, however, the era where this kind of stuff was pretty hands off. I remember I did my master's. Uh, actually, I did my master's partly with Keith Brewster, who was at Newcastle. I think he's just retired. Um, I did my master's on the kind of um, the myth of Zapata, the mythology of Zapata in the kind of post-revolutionary period, the idea that he had survived and was going to lead Mexico to redemption. But my uh, my PhD I did with David Brading, and I, I remember I'd been on the PhD, this this now sounds unbelievably unprofessional, but I'd been on the PhD program, um, program I think, for about a month when I went into an interview with David who said, it's completely pointless you being here. Um, what are you going to study? So I came up with an elaborate project to study actually genuinely can't remember i think political thinkers during the independence movement or something like that and he said no that's nonsense and just just silly where does your wife come from i said oaxaca he goes that's nice uh what what era do you interested in i said well kind of post-revolutionary era maybe or something i find that kind of fascinating he goes yeah do that uh find out if anyone's done it and then do it um and if no one has so i at that point found out no one had really done it and disappeared to Oaxaca for two years um came back wrote the PhD amazingly quickly and was unbelievably fortuitous to get a job at Michigan State um so yeah I mean it wasn't the kind of long drawn I'm sure what are you, how many years are you into your PhD Jordan well, I'm only in my first year but it's uh yeah normally a seven year average in the US yeah this was two and a half uh so which which shows what an what what an a breathtaking knowledge i had when i first appeared in michigan state in 2005 again um it was it, i come from a position of privilege which is called coming out of a phd in 2005 which was kind of peak fall out of bed get a job uh so i was just amazingly lucky um uh i suppose the other thing that that that, that struck me however about uh, yeah, the PhDs, there was, there was a real enormous freedom to it, which I found, I, I know nowadays when you do PhDs in the UK, even I suppose it's even worse in the US, that you continually have to go to classes, you continually have to um, fulfil certain requirements, you've got to meet your tutor every couple of weeks or a month. Uh, I don't think I met David Brading again for about two years i think i must have had in total four maybe six meetings with him uh six well there are six chapters so i'm guessing six meetings um and but but that in a, in a way that kind of taught me it did it gave me a kind of um uh, it uh gave me an enormous sense of freedom i suppose I, sh I mean, I'm, I'm guessing that David will not be listening to this, but I'm pretty sure that every other person who studied with David Brading in those the final years didn't get a PhD. So perhaps I was just lucky. Yeah, so, yeah, that's really interesting to hear about <laughs> these kind of uh, past experiences in the, in the system, because obviously it's changed okay. so much now. It's a, it, was, it was, I think I was in the, honestly, in the last years of the Wild West, I mean, it, it was a bit kind of like that, and 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 um, I mean, and I, I actually began began the conversation saying, I yeah, it came out of ignorance. Uh, there's no way I should have gone to Cambridge. David had been retired. I should have left him in retirement. The poor chap. Uh, I should have gone to to Oxford to work with Alan Knight. But I'd absolutely no idea. And this is, comes back to ignorance that you were meant to work with somebody who was 
doing a project that you were interested that who had already worked on that kind of thing before I, I had no concept of that and the idea of going to America was just, just kind of amazing I'd, I'd never even considered that um so um yeah I as I said I kind of just uh rocked up at Cambridge and said oh, I'll, I'll kind of do this myself uh is that all right <laughs> and they, they and I was fortuitously still in an era where you kind of could do that but obviously things changed over the last next five years things changed really radically uh and, and probably for the better I don't I don't think it's necessarily a terribly efficient or, or good way to uh quote unquote train people but it was enormously enjoyable for me yeah um, so I mean that takes us on to the kind of next stage. So what did you do after the PhD? So yeah, talk us through the experience after that. Right. How much am I going to say? Uh, so I initially got a postdoc at something called the Center for the Study Center for the History of Economics or History and Economics, which is run out of King's College, Cambridge. Uh, it's a basically part. It was part part of Cambridge University and part of kind of private boondoggle by Emma Rothschild, uh, who is a historian at the University of Harvard, I believe now. Uh, it's in no way connected to her husband, Amartya Sen, also being at Harvard. Uh, she she, she uh, was very interested in history, so she set up the centre, um, which I was very kindly given a job at, which I survived, I think, three months at uh, before leaving under not terribly bright sunshine, let's say. Um, anyone who'd like to speak more about this uh, is very welcome to uh, message me uh, or email me because frankly, it was, it was a kind of, it was an extraordinary insight into how the wild west side of Cambridge um, operated. I mean, it was just madness. Uh, I still can't quite get over how strange it was. Uh, so very fortuitously, I then um, I went to the AHA that year and I was uh, I, I met a wonderful group of historians from the Michigan State University, a particular guy called David Bailey, who's now sadly passed away, who seemed to really like my work, particularly my work on kind of Catholicism uh, in Mexico. And uh, frankly, he took a punt on me. Uh, and gave me a job at Michigan State. And I was there for, for, for the next eight years and they were absolutely foundational. And uh, it was a really exciting growing department. There were loads of, they were just hiring loads of people. I mean, it was pre-2008-9, pre it, uh, it was the kind of glory years, right? We, we hired a load of Latin Americanists. I mean, there was already Peter Beattie who did Brazil, but we, um, uh, we hired... A Chileanist. Uh, we hired a kind of um, uh, Atlantic uh, Atlantic world. We had hired loads of Africanists at the same time as me. So it suddenly felt the kind of world history was was kind of taking over, and it kind of was. Um, so I was just really uh, had a wonder, really really wonderful time there. Actually, I, I, I look back with great fondness on on, on my time at uh, at, uh, at Michigan. And um, so then you returned to Warwick, is that right? Yes, I made uh, I made what I now realise to be an incredibly in politic decision to slash my salary. But I was, I already knew that I was going to get a lower salary at Warwick, but I wasn't too worried because I thought that uh, pretty much what America lacked was a kind of safety net, and what Britain had was one so i looked at the kind of big social advantages of going to britain not only being near my family but also the nhs um broadly if not free then very cheap education at university for my children um uh, a decent pension um uh, a kind of relied upon pension one that wasn't linked to an up and down stock market i looked at all those things and thought i know i'll go back to the uk i sit here now in 2002 Brits spend as much on private healthcare as the Americans. Um, you've got to spend about as much on a university as you do in America. Um, um, and my kids will be just as indebted as if they went to the US, um, except they won't get a scholarship. Uh, and uh, yeah, and my pensions got cut in half last year. So it was a brilliant decision. 
Yeah. <laughs> cool. So, what are the, I guess you kind of moved on to some of these things a little bit, but uh, what were the main differences or the key differences between the US and the UK experience? Uh, well, well, I mean, the, the key difference was that I, I and, and this is something I really regret. It's partly why actually I will be taking a Fulbright to go to San Diego, um, as long as they don't hear this. Um, is partly because you just don't teach people who really understand where, they, even when Latin America is on a map, right? I mean, obviously they do. Uh, but certainly, you know, the vast majority of students don't have a kind of instinctive interest in Latin America, whereas by the time I left Michigan State, I was teaching classes with almost half um, Mexican-American or, or Latino or Hispanic students, uh, which is really exciting, right? They all have their own opinions. They all have their own stories. Um, it, it made it an incredibly, uh, yeah, exciting place to be at. Maybe Michigan wasn't at the, the, the cutting edge of that somewhere like San Diego definitely is uh, but it was still pretty exciting um, so you don't have that in, in, in the UK at the same time I will say you also don't get the kind of ingrained prejudices um, about uh, Latinos that I definitely felt uh, in the United States that my wife certainly felt and that what made actually living in the Midwest at times somewhat difficult when you went out the kind of bubble of the university and you I don't know held hands in a coffee shop you know in the rural Michigan you often felt pretty uncomfortable and pretty watched and I remember I remember distinctly my what I would be getting the kid out of the car my wife would walk into a shop the security card would basically turn on his heels and just follow her into the shop and I could see all this happening because I was just in the car getting my kid out so that against foreigners but less overt prejudice um so that so that uh, that's not really got to do anything to do with academia but it did kind of feed into academia and in that my the students that i teach are kind of they are kind of uh, tabulados right they're, they're, they're kind of blank slates that you can kind of imprint things on which actually can have some advantages um another big difference i suppose uh there is actually quite a lot i mean this is it comes back to issues of money but although pay in the uk is frankly pretty pitiful um research grants are really big uh and this is something that really surprised me my, my assumption was they would be somewhat in scale um with the with the with the payment but there is actually the opportunity to get fairly large research grants so for example for the drug book i got a, a 250,000 pound research grant now what i found out was that paid for about me and a couple of other people to do some research we got a, um, a brilliant brilliant historian nat morris to do a lot of research for us but we could pay for him for a year year or two to do that um but i think most importantly um uh, and i realized this is partly why they're so vast is basically about half of it is taken by the university as overheads i go straight to the administration to um pay for the administration but there, is, but there are the opportunities to kind of really big societal impactful things. Now I know you've got the NEH in America, but the vast majority of individual, the vast majority of research money out there is for kind of in, individual geniuses like the Guggenheim, which I'm not sure all that does is give a professor the ability to write a pop book for a year. I'm not in and 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 put it on their CV. I'm not sure they're terribly useful. They don't really, uh, in, they don't. They don't really uh, push teamwork. They don't push interdisciplinarity. They just push your ego and your ability to get a year off. Um, so there are some, you know, it's 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 a bit on the one hand, on the other. As I as I said, as I sit in my shed here, uh, and I remember the vast office I had at Michigan State. There is a there is some regret, but not 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 entirely. There are some quite positive things about about British academia um, as well uh, there's also the other thing I would say is that uh, again this is a kind of on the one hand on the other it's like presumably you get from this from most historians right there's not a huge community of Latin Americanists in in Britain right which is it has its massive disadvantages although I'm very lucky at Warwick I have Camilla Cowling who's a brilliant historian of slavery I've got Rebecca Earl who probably is the leading historian of kind of the colony an amazing amazing uh um professor and and also a very kind person my head of department so i'm extremely lucky i've got rosie doyle as well as another mexicanist um so i'm very lucky in that way 
But beyond that, there are not huge amounts of Latin Americanists in um, in Britain, uh, which means that the kind of individual conferences that you go to tend to be kind of small. It's a fairly tight knit. It's a fairly um, uh, disparate community. People are spread over multiple different institutions. You don't have places like San Diego or Chicago, which have concentrations of these people. Having said all that, there is something quite freeing not having the weight of kind of various historical schools and various graduate programs breathing down your neck. So one thing I really found in the US is, and it's something I'd completely ignorant of before I kind of started publishing stuff, is that there were certain people who'd all gone to grad school together. Uh, they were very close friends, obviously. Uh, they were taught by one person or two people who effectively told them kind of this is what you should do your project on this is kind of how you should do it this is how you should think and they follow particular schools so it's really cliquey really uh what in mexico we would call casico now there's no the, what so i mean again i'm hoping alan doesn't read this i mean i suppose the only casico you could say here was alan but he if he is i suspect he might be a relative he, he might even admit he's a relatively inefficient casico um so uh here, you do feel free to kind of study what you want. You don't have to kind of doff your cap to these various historical schools. I remember the first book review I ever did of a book that I thought was frankly pretty poor. Um, it was certainly kind of um, intellectually messy. Uh, and uh, I gave it a relatively, I don't think particularly rude, but maybe critical review. And, and I had people kind of writing emails to me going, you shouldn't have done that. That was terribly unprofessional. So I thought I was allowed, given the freedom to do this kind of thing. Um, so so you don't feel that pressure at all in the UK, which is quite nice. I suspect you do if you do Southeast Asian history or if you do British history, right? But if you do Latin American history, there is, an, there is a kind of freedom to this that you can feel you can kind of say and study what you like without having to continually uh, doff your cap. I mean, I personally think it's a much more uh, cohesive group as well. So when you do come across Latin Americanists in the UK, it's an instant connection, not an instant competition. That 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 is absolutely that's really brilliant. No, you're absolutely right. So, uh, I mean, here's a, a little insight to my pathetic <laughs> small world of Latin Americanists. But we have a group of us Mexicanists, all kind of very influenced by Alan Alan Knight, but we're really really close friends. Um, and, you know, we meet, we meet very regularly, but we also meet kind of once a year for a big get together. And it's and it's not competitive. And we do work together. Right. We apply for grants together. Um, we we you know, we talk about stuff a lot uh, and it is completely uncompetitive. We're not going for the same gigs. Um, uh, so uh, we just live in different parts of the UK, really. Um, so you're right. That is uh, there is an instant connection. You're, you're, I, I went up to the Newcastle um, Latin American Center and I hadn't met any of them before. And we just I just got on like a house on fire. It's just really, really fun to meet a load of Brits who had fallen in love with Colombia or Mexico or whatever, Panama, um, because it does kind of mark you out, makes you a bit different, really. Yeah. Um... Um, that's kind of bringing me on to uh, one of the questions I have, which is, <clears throat> so why does Latin America matter to the UK? So, uh, I mean, in some ways, uh, given the, the, the obsession with um, making uh, social and economic impact, uh, a lot of American, British funding bodies would say not enormous amounts, uh, given that we have limited trade uh, with Latin America, particularly limited trade with Mexico, despite a vast quantity of free trade agreements. Um, we had a huge, it was a huge jamboree around the 2015 UK-Mexico year. I don't know if you remember it. Um, and we managed to increase our trade 1%. Uh, but then when you buried into the figures, you found out that all that we'd done is increased our arms trade 600%. So we'd basically flogged the Mexican government a bunch of guns to kill people at Tlatelaya. And this was the year after Ayotzinapa Napa and Tlatelaya and stuff. Brilliant. Um, then again, you know, uh, pretty much in play with the uh, the British government's decisions over most things and the British economy. Um, anyway, so, so economically, I'm not sure there is. There is, as many people say, there is a very, very long history of kind of British interaction, mostly because of the empire uh, with Latin America. Um, but I mean, 
I think most fundamentally, the reason that I think Britain should Britain should be interested in 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 in, in Latin America is because as academics, we should just be interested in every part of the world, right? I don't think we should exclude bits because we don't have a mine there or something like that. Um, so, I, you know, I think that most departments should be broadly split between the globe, right? I don't think it really matters, you know, if we've got 25% or 20% here and 20, 30% here. But basically, I think that when we're going to give people an experience or we're going to teach students about history, we should attempt to do it, including as many people's as many races and as many experiences as possible. Otherwise, you're simply teaching this kind of boring Western sieve that we kicked out about 30 years ago. Um, so, uh, yeah, that I mean, I think I think we should. Latin America is important to Britain because because it's part of the globe's history. Um, and I don't believe in. I know certain universities in the UK when they heard about impact, it was quite interesting. They went two ways. Some of them basically continued on this way of you know, uh, world history, multiple different uh, people who know languages, what is now called to a certain extent has been folded into decolonization, although I think there's obviously differences between the two. Um, but but so some people went down that route. I think York University kicked out all its world historians and went pure heritage. And when impact is basically Dan Snow looking at a castle. Um, and I think that's incredibly unfortunate and narrow minded and daft. Um, because uh, if the UK wants to be a kind of leading uh, centre for history, it's, it's got to look at the world. Yeah, I mean, 100% agree with that. I think that, you know, beyond economic, you know, impact, there is much more to the world than, you know, taking money off people. And yeah, I mean, Britain is a, is a country of migrants. We have people from all over the world. So, you know, creating a, an inclusive and considerate space that, appreciates global diversity is i think really important no i i i completely agree um i also think i mean another thing that that i felt um i think to a certain extent brits can do forms of, again i'm going to sound very pretentious and put off nineteen thousand of your listeners here but um i think that to a certain extent brits can do can do research that america's can't um and, and it, well, one way I can see this is that I don't know if you you will not be able to uh, said the Fulbright, right? And I realise I'm now might well be burning a bridge that has just been erected for me to get to San Diego. But uh, while I was doing all this kind of research on the drug trade, I met other people who did research on the drug trade. They happened to be mostly Brits and Europeans. Virtually no Americans did it. Uh, a few did. I'm not going to say that's uh, Mexicans obviously did, um, but the vast majority. Uh, were from uh, Europe and the UK, especially the anthropologists. There's some amazing work being by, done by a guy, a fellow Scott called Trevor Stack up in Aberdeen. Um, there's amazing work being done by a guy uh, called Romain Lecour Grand Mazon, um, who's at the Sorbonne. I mean, really, really amazing anthropology in, in areas which, frankly, American funders would not fund. So the Fulbright, the Fulbright, there were years where the Fulbright would only allow you to go to. Uh, to to two states in uh in the united states um so so i mean so, whereas i could go anywhere i liked um cool so moving on to uh you know back to the uk context so <clears throat> how can universities uh create a more fruitful environment for Latin American history in the United Kingdom? Uh, well, I think to a certain extent they are starting to. So we had, for example, a global history centre um, at Warwick, which was a kind of leader, the leading global history centre in the UK, as we were endlessly told. Um, but for the first seven years of me being at Warwick, uh, they'd never once invited a Latin Americanist. Uh, but things were, this was partly partly basically because Latin America historically had not been kind of pulled into global history because global history had been a basically preserve extension of empire history, right? Um, so those boundaries are broken down. It's partly a generational thing. I think the people who kind of run the center were came out of that kind of imperial history stuff. And, and actually, it's also kind of an, a, it's also kind of a linguistic thing, which is both good and bad. The older generation tended of historians a lot of them came out of british history and only really knew one language uh whereas um that is not the case now um so i think some of this stuff is happening 
Um, I think that Britain's push for these kind of interdisciplinary, um, big, impactful grants really helps Latin America. I mean, some of the best kind of uh, kind of impact case studies were on Latin America. I mean, the stuff that that Jenny Pierce was doing. Jenny Pierce again, I think I think an anthropologist, but from 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 London, and she was attempting to kind of create civil society organizations that were combating violence in small communities in Mexico. It's kind of breathtaking what she was done, uh, was doing. Trevor Stack as well, doing something similar. Um, um, so, so I think Latin America can put itself right at kind of the front of impact case studies um, and move and, and, you know, do impact case studies, which aren't just about heritage, which a lot of the British stuff was, which I found a bit, frankly, dull and, and, and a little uninspiring. Great. Um, so I guess the final question is, uh, how do you see this, this field of Latin American history growing in the UK? <laughs> I'm not sure if I see it growing, given the recent, um, I mean, the, um, at the moment, the British government or the, the, no, the authorities of the universities are attempting desperately to slash humanities departments. I think that's fairly well established. Um, so we had this research excellence framework results came out about a week ago. Uh, and within that week, they've um, folded humanities departments at your old place, Dundee, but also De Montfort. I think a couple of other uh, um, Hampton, uh, a few other universities, they basically just fold them into the social sciences and, and sacked a load of people uh, because that's that's the other difference in the UK and the US. You can get sacked in the UK really easily. Um, there's no tenure in the UK. Um, Goldsmith's uh, history department has been completely ripped apart. Uh, so in some ways, having started in a quite hopeful way, uh, basically because you seem to be quite uh good at eliciting optimistic uh kind of stuff i'm now going to end with a kind of note of pessimism that i'm not sure there is a i'm not sure where the, the future kind of goes from here because we're, we're involved in as i say a very uh the, the university authorities are, uh, in britain are redrawing what it means to be an academic here um so are those large research grants going to exist in the next decade I mean, the way things are going, I'm not so sure. Um, are the kind of area study centres, which have been centres of, um, of 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 academic research, um, particularly Latin American research, are they going to exist? They're small. They're probably not enormously profitable for the universities. Uh, Warwick's got closed, and we all got folded into the history department. But still, so I think there are. I'm not sure that having given you quite an optimistic uh kind of ideal there is not there are clouds on the horizon it's just good it's good to end with a cliche <laughs> well i mean it's good to to bring in that balance uh and again a little bit more kind of candid realism of the situation at the moment um but yeah so i'll conclude there uh thank you very much ben for for joining us it's been really good to to, to hear about your book and then learn about your experience of being an academic in the United States and in the United Kingdom. Okay, well, I hope I didn't uh, annoy too many people. And um, thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. I don't ever get to speak about myself, which is strange. Um, I could speak about a lot of Mexicans, really. Uh, so it's a real joy. And I hope we can like hook up and meet up in uh, San Diego or in Mexico. Cool. Thank you very much.